0: This week, dear friends, as we have prepared to consider the celebration of the death and resurrection of Jesus, I was, I was not able to help myself but think about the believers uh, in Egypt. And I wondered, how would they come to church this Sunday after last Sunday? You know, we have just sung this song that says, and life is worth the living just because he lives. Some of us this morning are coming uh, with hearts that are heavy laden, distraught, discouraged. Things are not going well, and you're wondering, is it worth living this life with so many difficulties and disappointments and challenges? And this song tells us, and life is worth the living just because he lives. And yet, I want to take it a a step even further and think about the believers in Egypt. Some of them might sing this morning, and life is worth the death as well. Just because he lives. Oh, dear friends, we are gathered here this morning to proclaim a message that is able to give us not only reasons for why we can live tomorrow, we are here to proclaim a message that gives us reasons why we can die tomorrow. And if the message we are here to proclaim doesn't give us that courage, doesn't give us, give us that foundation, that confidence... That even death is worth dying because he lives. Oh friends, if we're not ready to say that, I hope today, I hope that through this message, I hope that through what we are encountering today that the Lord would help us realize it's not just that tomorrow is worth living, it's that tomorrow is worth dying as well. Well, this morning I invite you to open scripture to the book of Acts chapter 2. I will be reading from verse 22 to verse um, 40. And also, we are keeping in mind the Old Testament background to this particular text. Uh, one of the passages from the Old Testament is Psalm 16. We have already read it earlier in our service. We'll re- reference it in the sermon. But this morning, I encourage you to open the Bibles to Acts 2, uh, verse 22 to 40. And if you did not bring a Bible with you, we'd love for you to have the Bible provided it's chair in front of you. You may open this Bible, the Pew Bible, on to, and find our passage on page number uh, 910. Here's the word of the Lord for us. Acts 2.22 Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus delivered up according to definite plan and for knowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried. And his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn him an oath to him that he would not set One of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ. That he was not abandoned to hates, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus, God raised up. And of that, all, we all are witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this. You yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into heaven, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified, gift of the Holy Spirit, for the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, save yourselves from this crooked generation. Amen. This is the word of the Lord for us. Would you bow with me in prayer, asking the Lord to bless proclamation of his word for us. Father, would you speak to our hearts this morning through the power of your Holy Spirit in a way that Jesus Christ would be exalted in our hearts and in this congregation now and forevermore. Amen. Friends, the passage we have before us is the first sermon that the disciples preached after Jesus resurrected. Now, what's the occasion of this sermon that Peter preached? It's not Easter. It's the day of Pentecost, the day when Jesus sent his Holy Spirit and empowered his followers to be his witnesses. It might help us to remember what Peter experienced, not on the day of Pentecost, but what Peter experienced on the morning of the resurrection. And in light of that experience, to come back and notice how he preached on the first day of the Holy Spirit's descent upon the people. In order for us to remember the actual morning of the resurrection, I invite you to turn your Bibles, just a few pages from the passage we read, to John chapter 20. And I want to read to you as a way of of getting into our passage, I want to read another passage that would help us understand what actually happened on the morning of the resurrection. John 20, 1 through 10, and actually we'll be reading a few verses later as well, 13 and 14, just a few pages back, John 20, page 906. Here's what really happened on the morning of the resurrection. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. Now I want you to imagine the scene. She sees... The tomb opened up. And what she does, she doesn't go in to check what's happening in the tomb. She ran and went to Simon Peter, the one who preached the first sermon on the day of Pentecost, and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, here's Mary's interpretation of seeing the tomb uh, opened up. Here's what she took away from that first scene of the, of the morning." They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they have laid him. That's the first interpretation. And then Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. And Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb. And he saw the linen cloths lying there, and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with a linen cloth, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went in and saw and believed. For as yet... They did not understand the Scripture that He must arise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb, and as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. Now remember, by this time, the two disciples had already gotten into the tomb, and they went out of the tomb to go back home. And she saw the two angels in white, sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet, they said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, and listened to the same interpretation that she had, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that he was Jesus. And for the third time, Mary sticks to her theory. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing to be the gardener, she said, Sir, if you had carried him away, tell me where you have laid him and I will take him away. Can you see in Mary this this blindedness. She's actually face to face with Jesus. And she can't see it yet. She had, she had seen the empty tomb. She doesn't get it yet. Until Jesus calls her by her name. And says to her, Mary. Now why do I bring this introduction to you this morning simply to point out that on the morning of the resurrection none of the disciples were ready or had a category to understand the resurrection. It's not like on the morning of the resurrection everybody woke up excited. It's Easter morning. Let's go proclaim the resurrection of Jesus. It's more like Jesus showed up, and they don't get it. <laughs> they, they really don't see it. They go to examine the empty tomb, and they have other theories that they have taken the Lord away. Friends, the morning of the resurrection is not a morning of an exciting proclamation. It's more like a, a, a morning of a slow getting. And yet, we see Peter in the first sermon He's preaching the the resurrection of Jesus and he's preaching about it in a way that they have missed it in the first day. Here's what I mean. Let's see how how Peter proclaims the resurrection of Jesus on the day of Pentecost. Peter goes on to speak about what happened on the day of Pentecost. The Holy Spirit was poured out on, on these followers of Jesus People thought that they were drunk. So Peter uh, stands up and says, Men of Israel, men of Jerusalem, these people are not drunk as you think they are. Uh, Here's what happens this morning. Here's what happened today. Um, There was a prophecy in the book of Joel when God prophesied centuries before that he would pour out his spirit on his people. And and alongside with that promise of the pouring of his people, there was another promise attached. In verse 21 of chapter 2, The promise is that when the Lord would give out His Spirit, would pour out His Spirit, it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. That was a promise given with a pouring out of the Spirit. And now Peter is going to expand on who is the Lord on whom people must call in order to be saved. Peter starts talking about the story of Jesus. And as he proclaims Jesus and his resurrection, I want us to consider three points about the proclamation, the first sermon that that Peter preached about Jesus on the day of Pentecost. Here's the first point about Jesus that Peter spoke to them. You crucified and killed Jesus. Here's the first point that Peter stands up and explains and declares and establishes, you crucified and killed Jesus. The main point of verses 22 and 23 is this simple truth. You crucified and killed Jesus. Now let's see how Peter actually does this. Uh, he starts off in verse 22. He says, men of Israel, these were, these, uh, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth. And then he goes on and for the rest of verse 22 and gives him some information about this Jesus of Nazareth. That he was a man uh, whom, uh, whom God had attested, a man attested by God with mighty works, wonders, and signs that God did through him in your midst as you yourselves know. In other words, the man they crucified and killed was not a criminal. And he was no ordinary man. He was a man attested by God. The mighty works, the wonders, the signs that Jesus had done among them, they were the acts of God working His work among His people through Jesus. The mighty works, the wonders that Jesus made, the signs, were not some sort of magic or some sort of miraculous power that is some sort of a neutral spirituality No, they were the actions that God himself has done through Jesus. But to them, to the Israelites, these signs mattered little because they still killed him. Peter wants to drive deep into their hearts their guilt and their responsibility. The man they crucified and killed was the one through whom God carried out his own works in their midst. In verse 23, he picks up this name, Jesus, again, and he says, this Jesus. And he wants to say, you killed, you crucified. But before he goes there, he tells us something else about this Jesus. He says, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. In the second parenthetical clause, Peter actually tells us that Jesus was delivered and handed over Not simply by the hands of Judas, not simply by the hands of the human plans and plots that devised to kill him. Jesus was handed over according to the definite plan of God. According to his foreknowledge, every step of the process that led to the crucifixion of Jesus had been planned by God. Yet just as it was God's plan that Jesus would be crucified and killed, It is also true that people were still responsible because they did it willingly. They did it freely. If you asked Caiaphas if Caiaphas wanted to kill Jesus, if you asked the high priests if they wanted to kill Jesus, they would have said, Absolutely. We've been working on this since John chapter 5. Since John chapter 5, we are told that the leaders of Israel were seeking a way to kill Jesus. When, if you went and you were just a, a reporter or an observer in the crowd before Pilate, when Pilate says, shall I release to you this man? And the crowd freely, willingly said, no, 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 not this man, but Barabbas. It was a crowd who chose to crucify Jesus. It was their desire to do so, and yet it was at the same time the definite plan of God. God had made this plan, and His Son freely accepted it. But with all this, the ultimate point that Peter drives home is that this Jesus, who was indeed delivered up according to the plan and foreknowledge of God, this Jesus you crucified and killed. Just because it was the plan of God, does not get them off the hook in terms of their responsibility for this crime. Yes, this was the plan of God, but they acted willfully. They acted out of their own desires as well. And they acted with an evil heart. Friends, divine sovereignty does not cancel out human responsibility because people still acted according to their own desires, and they accomplished their sinful desires. Peter acknowledges that it was not the hands of the crowd that nailed Jesus to the cross. The responsibility of the crowd for crucifying Jesus is not connected to the fact that it was their hands that actually nailed Jesus. Peter says that very uh, clearly. You crucified him by the hands of lawless men. Nevertheless, this crowd on the day of Pentecost is still charged with the responsibility. In other words, you didn't have to have your hand there hammering the nail to be charged with this guilty stance. You crucified and killed Jesus. The apostles did not shy away from declaring not only the sovereign plan of God for the death of Christ, but also the human responsibility for the crucifixion of Jesus. Despite all the miracles Jesus did in front of them, despite all the signs and wonders, they still killed him. One of his own disciples betrayed him, and the leaders and the crowd of the people would rather have released a murderer than Jesus And they said, let his blood be on us and on our children. Friends, humanity is still culpable. Even if our hands were not physically there, our sin was there, our wickedness was there. I love how John Stott in his fabulous, magnificent book entitled The Cross of Christ, he said, we ourselves... Are also guilty. If we were in their place, we would have done what they did. Indeed, we have done it. We too sacrificed Jesus to our greed, like Judas, to our envy, like the priests, and to our ambition, like Pilate. One of the songs we have sung Friday night at the Good Friday service was entitled, Were You There? Were you there when they crucified my Lord? The song that tries to take us to that moment. And the answer is, we have been there, but not as spectators watching the the, the, the crucifixion. We were there as participants, participating with our sin. Horatius Bonar, the famous Scottish hymn writer, penned this truth in his hymn, and he said this. "Twas I that shed the sacred blood. I nailed him to the tree. I crucified the Christ of God. I joined the mockery. Of all that shouting multitude, I feel that I am one. And in that din of voices rude, I recognize my own. Around the cross, the throng I see, mocking the suffer- sufferer's groan. Yet still, My voice, it seems to be, as if I mocked alone. Before we can begin to see the cross as something done for us, we have to see it as something done by us. Said one theologian. Friend, I wonder if you too recognize that our own sin was the reason that Jesus was crucified and killed. Peter Green said beautifully, Only the man who is prepared to own his share in the guilt of the cross may claim his share in its grace. Peter's first point in his sermon on the day of Pentecost is to declare and establish the human responsibility for the crucifixion of Jesus You crucified and killed him. The second point Peter goes on to declare is that God reversed the human plans. God reversed the human plans by raising Jesus. Look at verse 24. Uh, Verse 24, God raised him up. In other words, even if the Jewish leaders wanted to stop Jesus by putting him to death, hoping that, That would be the end of Jesus. And they did it in the most scornful way, uh, intending to show the most humiliating death, the highest manifestation of shame and curse. And they accomplished all that they desired against Jesus. And they even put a Roman guard to make sure that no one would steal Jesus. Nevertheless, God reversed their plans. Friends, it's amazing. It is amazing to be able to recognize and meditate at the power of God. To be able to reverse the most, in, the most shameful, unjust, cruel act. And take something that was brought so low in terms of shame. And from that to exalt His own Son, to the highest degree, to the highest place of glory and honor, God raised him up. Now, why did God raise him up? Why did God raise him up? In verse 24, we're given the first reason. Now, before we go into the reasons, it's amazing to, uh, to, to see how people today think of all these arguments for the resurrection of Jesus. Peter gives us the first reason. Why did God raise him up? He says, because it was not possible for Jesus to be held by it. Peter says in verse 24, because it was not possible for Jesus to be held by it, by death. Oh dear friend, notice in this description the excellency of Christ. For all human beings, we might say, for any of us, we might say, it is impossible for any of us to escape death and to be held by it. But for Jesus, the impossibility was not His resurrection. The impossibility was to continue to be held by it. Think about that. For Jesus, the impossibility was not the resurrection. The impossibility was being able to stay held by death, Friend, if you ever wonder if Jesus is worth following, let this truth about Him sink into your heart. When Jesus met death, and He did meet it in a very, very real way, and in a very shameful way, and in a very unjust way, in a very scornful way, when Jesus met it and He tasted it, Nevertheless, it was not possible for Jesus to be held by death. Death can take the hold of any of us for a long time, and it will. But he was not able to do it for Jesus. Now, why was it impossible for Jesus to be held by death? On what grounds? What, what is the reason why Peter says it was not possible for Jesus to be to be held by death. You know where, Jesus, where, where Peter gets his reason from? Or where, what the reason is? Because the word of God said so. Because God said so. Peter goes on to quote the Old Testament scripture where David spoke about the Christ. In Psalm 16. Look at verse 25 and through 28. Peter says, for David says, concerning him, concerning Christ, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand, that I may not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope, for you will not abandon my soul to the Hades, or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the path of life, and you will make me full of gladness with your presence. Friends psalm 16 is a great psalm in which david describes his desire to find refuge in god in verses 1 through 8 of psalm 16 david was confident that he will not be shaken because he set his eyes on the lord he focused his attention to god and his heart was glad and 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 was and his tongue was was full of rejoicing but what he was his confidence set on? What was it about the Lord that he was really set on? It was not just in general, just a general knowledge of the Lord. David's hope and reason for rejoicing and for setting his hope in the Lord was this. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades, or let your Holy One see corruption. Who was David talking about? Was he talking about himself? Peter says on the day of Pentecost, no, he was talking about Christ. And this is what Peter says in verse 29. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David. He both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. And Peter goes on to explain being a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with a oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, David foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ. That he, Christ, was not abandoned to the Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. Friends, the reason why David rejoiced, the reason why David was confident in God and took refuge in him was not simply based on what God was going to do for David based on what God was going to do for Christ. David was speaking about the resurrection of Christ, and because David saw the resurrection of Christ, David himself was able to consider God, his refuge and confidence and rest. Friend, I wonder if you are able to find God to be your refuge this morning. Not merely because of what God can do for you now or in the immediate future, but because of what God has already done in Christ. So often we think that we can find refuge in God as long as He acts towards us. But David, in Psalm 16, shows us confidence in God because of what God promised to do for Christ. Peter's First proof of the resurrection of Jesus is a scripture. The second proof of the resurrection of Jesus that Peter gives in this proclamation that God reversed the human plans by raising Jesus, the second reason is Peter says, and we all are witnesses of it. Look at verse 23. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we all are witnesses. Friends, the resurrection of Jesus was a historical reality. Jesus physically resurrected from the dead. And that historical event is not simply pie in the sky. But had eyewitness testimony. Now, that first generation of eyewitnesses is gone. We might say, wow, they really had an advantage for being able to see Jesus with their eyes. Touch him. To be like Thomas. Who would say, I won't believe until I touch him? Say, so, oh, if we had been there, if we had touched Jesus with our own hands, we would believe. Jesus did give Thomas this grace, he appeared to Thomas and said, Thomas, bring your hand and put it in my side. See and believe. But then, Jesus, when Thomas sees Jesus, And Jesus gives him this proof. Thomas says, my Lord and my God. And Jesus tells Thomas, you have believed because you have seen me. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. I love how Richard Sibbs, the uh, English Puritan, said, We should live by faith and not by sense. The light of sight is reserved for another world when we are fitted for it. A day will come, my dear friends, when we will see Jesus face to face. Until that day, we're called to believe the testimony of the first generation eyewitnesses who have said, we have seen him. We have touched him. Believe that Jesus has been resurrected from the dead. Now, you know what amazes me about the second reason about the fact that Jesus says, I mean, Peter says, we all are Witnesses of it, you know what amazes me about it? It's that it's a second reason, not the first. If I had been there preaching the sermon, I would have gone straight to my own evidence of what I have seen. Oh, let me tell you about the details of that morning. Let me tell you how it all happened step by step. But that's not what Peter does. He actually does not even expound on exactly what they have seen or or how it all happened on that morning of the resurrection. What Peter actually expounded is the Old Testament scriptures. The best evidence for the resurrection of Jesus is the very Word of God. That's the amazing part, my dear friends. And if we won't believe the Scriptures, we won't believe someone's eye testimony either. I love this parable of Jesus when he gave the the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. The, The parable goes on and says that both die. Lazarus goes into the presence of Abraham, the rich man into the place of torment. And the rich man asked Abraham, I beg you, Father, to send Lazarus to my father's house, for I have five brothers so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And the rich man said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to him, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, Neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Reality is someone did rise from the dead and they still did not want to believe it. Human experience alone is not enough to convince us of the resurrection of Jesus. You who might be skeptical this morning and say, I'm I'm not sure if I believe all this. Had I been there, I may have have believed, but I can't. These things don't happen again today. Oh, friends, don't trust your reason to be the source of your faith in God. Now, our faith is reasonable. Don't get me wrong. But human experience alone is not enough to get us to believe in Jesus. If you had been there, you may as well have been among those Who would have denied the testimony of the eyewitnesses? Our faith in God, our faith in the resurrection of Jesus, is first and foremost caused when we hear the testimony of God in His Word. Friends, if you ever wonder, if you ever wonder whether the Old Testament is worth studying and examining, For Peter, the Old Testament is the first proof of the resurrection of Jesus. Take that and just let that sink in. Yes, Peter says, we've all been witnesses of these truths and there's no question about it. But where I really wanted to land on this morning is I want you to understand all this had to happen. Christ was not possible for him to be held by death. Why? Because God said so in his word. And that's enough. Oh, and if, just want to let you know, and we testify to that. And thirdly, Peter gives a third reason for the, for the resurrection of Jesus. It's the fact that the Holy Spirit was poured out on that day. Peter goes on in verse 33, he says, Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this, that you yourselves are seeing and hearing Oh, friends, Peter here clearly declares that Jesus not only was raised by God, but Jesus was exalted by God to the right hand of the Father, of God himself. And Jesus received the promise of the Holy Spirit from God. And Jesus poured it out on them. The presence of the Spirit is a third proof why Jesus was resurrected. At the end of the day, my dear friends, it is the Holy Spirit that convicts us that Jesus indeed has been resurrected. Peter draws this emphasis out for the crowd. He says, Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ. This Jesus whom you crucified. Oh, well, friends, there are people even today who think they can put away Jesus. They can accomplish it for a while with their lives. They can ignore Jesus. They can have reasons to keep him uh, at a distance, keep him afar. They might think that with their wise and smart arguments, they can prove his non-existence or they can prove that he is not important. But men and women and dear friends, listen to to this. Peter makes it clear. God not only raised Jesus from the dead, God exalted him at his right hand. And he will come again to judge the living and the dead. Peter looks at the reality of the day of Pentecost and says, listen, the reality of the church, the reality of the Holy Spirit working through people is a reason, is a proof, another proof that Jesus is risen and exalted. How to respond to this news? How to respond to this news? Here's the, the final point that Peter brings home to the crowd. We have considered that Peter drives home the, the responsibility of humanity to kill and crucify Jesus. We have considered how God reversed the human plans and raised Jesus from the dead and exalted him. So how to respond to this news? This is the final point of Peter's sermon. Notice a crowd responds in verse 37. When they heard this, they were cut to the heart. And said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? What shall we do? Friends, what we learn from the response of the crowd is that the news about the death and resurrection of Jesus creates a crisis for all those who hear about this news. The crisis is this. If the Jesus whom we have crucified is the very one God had attested, is the very one who fulfilled the plan of God, and we are the ones who crucified Him. And if this Jesus whom we crucified, God had actually raised up and exalted, then we're in trouble. Because our plans didn't work. Our plans to put Jesus away don't work. Not for long. Not forever. Oh, dear friends, the crowd is is cut to the heart and they say, what should we do? Peter's response is very simple. Repent and be baptized. Repent and be baptized. The same response... Of repentance is clearly stated by Peter in other sermons in, in chapter 3 verse 26 Peter connects the resurrection of Jesus with a need for repentance Peter says in Acts three twenty six, God having raised up his servant sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness difference this is repentance it means to turn away from our ignorance of God, from our rebellion against God, from our sinful, self-centered, selfishly independent way of life. Oh, friends, the message about the resurrection of Jesus invites us, even commands us to repent, turn away from our old way of life and turn the opposite direction and begin following Jesus by trusting and relying upon salvation the salvation that he alone obtained for us. But it's not only the command to repent. The command to repent is also followed by another command, to be baptized. Baptism is a public declaration. Baptism is the official press release of our repentance, of our death to our old life, of our turning away from a particular way of life and now directing our lives to God and following him, By placing our trust and reliance on Jesus. My dear friends. Peter made it very clear on that day. What shall we do? If we are the ones who crucified Jesus. Yet God raised him from the dead. Repent. And be baptized. I wonder my dear friend. If you have heard this news about the resurrection of Jesus. I wonder how. You have reacted in the past. Perhaps you have. Left it sort of alone. On a shelf. In the room of your mind, somewhere hidden. Oh, I'm going to get to it sometime. When I get older, when I retire, when I will have lived my life, I'll come back to this Jesus. Oh, dear friends, don't delay this response. If we have killed Jesus, and we have, we're responsible. If God raised him from the dead, and he has for certain, then we are in a crisis. And the only way to resolve that crisis is to turn away from our sin, to repent, and to show that publicly through the act of baptism. Now Peter's sermon in verse 39 did not stop. I will stop. I will stop. But I do want to let you know what he kept on preaching about just so you have an idea of what he kept preaching about. In verse 40, Peter, it says, and with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, save yourself from this crooked generation. This is what he kept on saying and saying and saying. Let me say to you in conclusion this morning, dear friend, without Responding to this news about the death and resurrection of Jesus. Without receiving and embracing this news by repentance and faith and the public act of baptism, we remain doomed and destined to the same eternal destruction reserved for all the wickedness of this generation. Respond, therefore, to Christ, even now, by asking Him in your own heart, in your own prayer, in your own thoughts, Right now, ask God to save you. Tell Him that you want to repent of your sin, that you want to turn your way from your old life and turn it to Jesus. Follow Him. If you'd like to know more about that, what that means, if you have questions about that, I would love to talk to you at the end of the service. But be assured of this, that a proclamation about Jesus Christ, about His resurrection, leads to, or led the apostles to call people to repentance. I love the way Paul, in Acts 17, preached about the resurrection of Jesus and spoke to the Athenian crowd. And he said, the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now He commands all people everywhere to repent because He has fixed a day on which He will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom He has appointed. And of this He has given assurance to all By raising him from the dead. We have crucified the Lord. God has raised him from the dead. Therefore, we are called to repent. And therefore, we are called to proclaim this repentance. So that through it, God may grant us the forgiveness of sins. And the gift of the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Father, help us to recognize the crisis which the resurrection poses for us. and Help us, O oh Lord, to recognize that the resurrection of Jesus is not only a crisis for our sinfulness, it is also a solution for our sinfulness. Father, we pray that You would draw people to Yourself through the preaching of Christ. And may we, Your people, boast in Christ alone and respond to Him having been forgiven by Him, having been granted justification by Him and through Him, may we indeed, every one of us, turn to You in faith and repentance so that in Christ alone we may find our right standing with You. God, we praise You. We thank You. And we bless Your name. In the name of Jesus we pray.